0: Let's turn to God's Word, then, shall we, together, as we consider our last uh, topic in this series called Biblical Principles of Church Discipline. As we turn to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, just a few verses, verse 15 through to verse 17. Matthew 18, 15, 17. We're going to look at another passage in a minute as well. But this will help us as we begin to look at this subject. These are Jesus' words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along, uh, two, two, uh, uh, one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he ref- refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this subject of discipline, we pray that as we look at your words, we will see that this is the way it's meant to be, that this is instituted for us, for our benefit as individuals and as a church. May you soften our hearts to this principle this morning, that we may take this seriously, that we may love discipline. Help us, we pray, in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, discipline can be viewed in two ways, can't it? I thought about this when I was studying. It can be viewed in two ways. That word, discipline, it can be viewed, firstly, how we discipline ourselves. You know, how we go from day to day or go through each day and we discipline our, our, our way that we work and the way that we do things and the way that we study and the way that we read God's word. There is that. But secondly, there is here, obviously as we've read from Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17, there is a second way to view discipline in that how we are disciplined by those outside of ourselves. So it's not done within ourselves, it's done by someone outside of ourselves. And this morning, that is what we look at, namely church discipline. And we're going to look at what it is and why we do it. But firstly, let me pose a question to each one of us, and this is very important. What is the gospel? If I was to ask that question at the door as I went out, I wonder what your response would be. What is the gospel? If you tried to give me an explanation, a short explanation of what it was, what would you say? What we know of the gospel and what we think The gospel really means for us, determines entirely how we look at church discipline. Now You may not see that correspondence yet between those two, but it is very much there. And therefore, I'm going to put two descriptions of the gospel, both with very subtle differences, on the screen. And we are going to determine what we think is a better description. Now, these descriptions I read this week. These are not my descriptions. These are not... Uh, my interpretation of the gospel, but they were so helpful to me as I read them and as I studied this last principle of discipline that I wanted to share them with you. And this is the first one on the screen. God is holy. We all have sinned, separating us from God, but God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to just believe. and unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Okay, number one. That's gospel number one. Let's just read number two. It's slightly longer. God is holy. We have all sinned separating us from God. God has sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and be given and begin to follow the son as king and lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone, but faith which is never alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to repent and believe. A contract-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like the Son. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune glory. Which of these two gospels better characterizes what you believe as the gospel? What do you think characterizes what the Bible teachers well the first one emphasizes Christ as Savior the second emphasizes Christ as Savior and Lord. The first points to Christ's new covenant and, and work of forgiveness the second includes both this and the Spirit's new covenant work of regeneration. The first includes that our new first includes our new status in Christ. the second includes both the new status and the new job description, That Christians are given as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And that's important. The first version points to a Christian's reconciliation with Christ. The second points to a Christian's reconciliation with Christ and Christ's people. If your understanding of the gospel stops with the first definition that I gave you, you will not have any time for the use of the topic Of church discipline. That will be put to one side for you. This is not to say that everything in the first one isn't true. It is. But it just doesn't go far enough. There is more to say. The second encompasses greater detail and a fuller picture of the gospel and what we are called into by Christ. It encompasses what we have seen over the last five weeks. It although not explicit. Involves obedience in baptism, understanding the seriousness of taking up our cross and following him. Being not only in union with Christ, but expressing that union with Christ as we join the church in membership. We join his body in the local church. It calls all those who believe in Christ to take of the ordinance of communion. And to give back to him our free will offerings as he is the one who has provided in every part of our life. Well, how does all of this link with church discipline? Well, it too is a clear biblical mandate. We've just read it, Matthew 18. And therefore, if the gospel that we hold on to, if, if this is the greater and fuller picture we hold on to and abide in that gospel number two that we read, we also will want and desire as believers to know that Discipline plays an important part in what Christ has called us to do. Well then, let me give you a number of questions. And that's how this sermon is going to be structured, as a number and a series of questions that you may ask, and I asked as I did the study. The first one is this, what is then church discipline? What is it? We may know this from the scripture how church discipline is practiced. As we read those three verses there, it is very clear. But do we really understand the fundamentals of church discipline? Have you ever considered it in detail before now? Well, here's a description to help us today. Church discipline is part of the discipleship process. It's part of the discipleship process it is where sin is corrected and disciples are pointed toward a bet, toward a better path discipline comes in the form of loving instruction and correction and makes certain that jesus representatives on earth represent jesus and not someone or something else you see church discipline isn't simply about blowing whistles and calling out everyone who sins it's not simply about that no it goes further and it is rooted far deeper than that legalistic view. It is an accountability to each other and to the elders so that we may ensure that a church, as church members, we are representing Christ rightly. It is a system that calls us to be what we claim to be. It's a system that calls us to be what we claim to be, namely Christ. Christ's, We are his And we want to be his and to be living and walking in a way that shows that we are his. But let's take this further as we look at uh, what Jesus says about church discipline. What does Jesus say about church discipline? Well, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, which we've just looked at, gives us a very clear four-stage process in which uh, we play out. As we deal with those who are walking in serious sin. That's not to say sin isn't serious. All sin is serious. But walking in serious sin. And I'll explain that in a moment. And the first one is this. And I want to just take this straight out of the text. It's there for us to read. It's there for us to understand. It's there for us to put into practice. And in verse 15 is step number one. Process uh, and stage number one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So go to your brother or sister alone. Just you and them. Nobody else at this stage. Just the two of you. And if he or she will listen to you, to your uh, loving guidance and warning about their very evident sin you have won them you have won them you have gained them back you have brought them back into the fold of God, how wonderful and then secondly if they do not listen take one or two others along with you verse 16 this is take One or two, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So stage two is, if they do not listen to you at stage one and you leave, then you come back with two or or more to talk again to them. That those who you brought with you will be witnesses to their unrepentant heart. That's basically what that means. That's what we see here. And then stage three, we see uh, that if he or she refuses to listen to them, this is verse 17, tell it to the church. This is where everyone gets a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? But this is what the Bible says. And by the church there, it means the membership of the church. So as we as church members in this place, if it was to get to this stage, we would gather together and we would share with you lovingly and in that body of believers confidentially this unrepentant heart of this person. And the result of that is that if he or she does not listen even to the church, then they must be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words... They are to be put out of the church. Excommunicated from membership and partaking of the Lord's supper. It's serious. and I struggle this week with this to want to show this to you in a loving way. This is not a legalistic model that we follow. But this is Christ's Model. We do this, we follow this process and these stages in love. And it's hard to deny, isn't it, that the process is clear. So clear. But the overarching theme of Jesus' process of discipline, for those who are the disciplinaries, is the three opportunities to seek a repentant heart. Time after time after time, we go to that person who has this serious and outward sin, and we seek three times their repentance, that they would turn away from it, and they would come back into God's fold, into the fold of the church. Well, for the disciplined, it is the reverse very clear. These multiple opportunities that they have to repent and give up that sin or sins which they have committed that has put them under the disciplinary process of the church. And I'll leave a marker in in Mark eighteen. Okay, leave a mark there because we're going to come back to the, that in a moment. But before we do that, I want to look at Paul's approach to church discipline. What does Paul say about church discipline? We're going to turn. Uh, to 1 Corinthians 5 1 Corinthians 5 1 to 3 and as you do that I just want to say to you that Paul invokes church discipline in Galatians 6 and 1 Ephesians 5 and 11 Titus 3 and 10 2 Thessalonians 3 14 to 15 but one of the most well-known or even famous passages in regard to discipline is this one 1 Corinthians 5 1 to 3 let's read these words It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present... I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I think it's clear that Paul's process of discipline seems very different to Christ's, doesn't it? Paul rebukes the church for tolerating sin in verse 1. When he says, not tolerated even among pagans this sin. But he does not go through the four-stage process taught by Jesus in Matthew 18. He doesn't look for a repentant heart, but he goes straight to a removal. He goes straight to excommunication in verse 2. So how do we balance Jesus and Paul's disciplinary processes? How do we do that? Well, I put it to you this, uh, this way. That... These are not contradictory processes, but they are complementary processes. Okay? So they're not contradictory processes, but they are complementary processes. How do I marry them two together? Well, I don't think Jesus, first of all, had lighter sins to deal with, and Paul had heavier, weightier, more serious sins to deal with, and then acted in such a way Uh, To simply remove them? No, I don't think that's right. And I don't think we should handle sin in that way in the church. I don't think those who have small sins and those who have larger sins and we deal with them in different ways, I don't think that's true or right. But I believe Paul is simply, and this is your answer to this question, I think Paul is simply beginning here just short of where Jesus' process ends. Okay? So I think Paul's process begins just short of where Jesus' process ends. Paul begins with the assumption of an unyielding unrepentance. Okay? Jesus' process exists for the purpose of determining whether or not a person is unyieldingly unrepentant. That's why we have the stages to see whether they would repent. And therefore, Jesus says, go to them once, twice, bring it to the church, <clears throat> and see if there is a, a, a repentant heart. But Paul, well, he's, he's further on than this already. He's, he's, he's further down the line. You see, Paul is writing a letter to be read to them, to uh, the Corinthian church, and it is included, as we have read, the sin Of this certain individual or individuals. Therefore we can see that Paul's disciplinary process. Begins just short of where Matthew 18 ends. So we are not to use Jesus process for some. And Paul's for others. Dependent on the scale of the sin. But we are to incorporate both. With our conclusions and convictions. Drawn on the basis that the person. Is characteristically unrepentant. That is what we are to see if we are to continue and to remove a person from the church. Well then, what sin warrants church discipline? That's a fair question, isn't it? What what sin warrants church discipline? Well, Jonathan Lehman, editor of Nine Marks, and I've used their books and I've recommended them to you, he would state that the kind of sins that warrant church discipline are those which are, firstly, significant. Secondly, outward. And thirdly, unrepentant. Okay? So firstly, significant. It must be serious. Not that sin isn't serious, but there needs to be a place in the church, life, for love, to cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4 and 8. And I use the word significant in the sense that your sin is so significant, I don't know how you can be a Christian and still sin the way you do. Outward, the second point is this, that we do not red flag every potential sign of sin. No, those hidden sins in someone's heart cannot be speculated on. I cannot see or try and speculate that because you've you've done something very small or said something very small that actually in your heart is manifesting a great sin and therefore we red flag it and we begin the process of discipline. No, it's something that we must see with our eyes or hear with our ears and be certain of. That's outward. And then the last one is unrepentant, which we've already talked about. You've challenged your brother or sister once, twice, three times, and they still won't let go of the sin and repent, even when challenged from Scripture. Maybe the disciplinary process has gone on for months. Yet all the evidence points to an unrepentant heart. And this process does and can go on for months. Because we a people of grace looking for those who would repent of their sin and come back to God, come back into the church and so on. It's not a week. It's not a few days. It's a process. If all three of these factors are present, significant, outward, and unrepentant, if they are all present, the church is moving towards excommunication. Well, then finally, I want to look at the purpose of church discipline What's the purpose of church discipline? And this is so important. I think this is what really brings all that we have said this morning and brings it into uh, uh, a mold together. And we see the beauty of this principle. Okay? So write these down. Remember these. And these are five characteristics or outcomes of church discipline. And The first one is this. To show the seriousness of sin. For there to be a disciplinary process set by Christ himself for our sinfulness, waywardness, or disobedience, it shows the seriousness of it. And we read, don't we, from scripture, like leaven. You know, a little leaven spoils the whole lot. So will sin in the church, it will spread Secondly, it is to act as a rescue operation. Not only does it show us the seriousness of our sin, but it acts in a way to rescue our brothers and sisters from shipwrecking their faith. Why would you not want that as part of your church? If your discipline is that, if it stops you from shipwrecking your faith and brings you back, as that description said, it brings you back towards and onto a better path, why would you not want that? Thirdly, it is to show love and forgiveness. And please, we need to get this. Members of the church, we need to understand this now. And this must set the tone as we go forward. To think of discipline as an unloving thing is to think of it wrong. It is the most loving thing we can do for each other. Those of us who are Christians, and those of us who believe in Christ, it is a loving thing that we do. And let me say this. The disciplinary process does not give anybody an excuse to maybe at a time where they are repentant and they come back into the church to not forgive them. We are forgiving people because we've been forgiven. And if the, the wanderer comes back and repents, then we are to forgive them and welcome them back as if that never happened. Fourthly, for the purity and the witness of the church, This is so crucial for us. The church should look differently than the world. Christians are not to live like pagans or tax collectors. And in doing so, we are salt and light. We stand out from the world. Discipline pushes us to holiness and purity in our life of faith. To confront sin in the church is the single best way to pursue purity in the church I believe we don't like confrontation right but this being an institution of Christ is I think one of the single best ways to pursue purity in the church we are to love righteousness and hate sin people will come and leave the church really quick They may do that in in this church. Maybe they've done it in the past. Maybe they'll do it in in my time as pastor here. They will come and they will leave really quick. Really, they will do that. uh, Probably because the word of God is offense to them. And we preach the word of God. You know, but those who stay... Stay because they love the word of God and what the word of God affirms and requires. That's why you will stay here. See, this is and will be going forward a church that is built and stands on God's word. And having in place church discipline will not empty the church, it will not empty the church, it will make it grow and it will make it a real church the church Christ wanted that is what it will make it fifthly to produce repentance and restoration I think our overarching aim is to see repentance and restoration, That is got to be the, uh, the aim and the goal of discipline that should be our desire of anyone who administers discipline not a desire for excommunication but a yearning for repentance and restoration and this means that we as a body of believers must also be ready as I've said to administer that forgiveness to all those who repent and are restored into the body of the church sin is serious the Bible takes it seriously Jesus takes it seriously God the Father takes it seriously so much so that he sent his only son to the earth to be murdered at the hands of sinners to redeem those sinners back to himself. He gave his only son that we may have our record of sin wiped away. Do we realize the implications of our sins? What they've done and And continue to do. And for the unbeliever here this morning. Church discipline does not apply to you whatsoever. You're immune. However. It is hard. And it has been hard I'm sure this morning. To miss the seriousness of sin. Generally. Impossible to miss it. However your sin in its current state, those of you who do not believe, does not require discipline. In God's eyes, it leads to eternal separation from a loving, loving God and eternal suffering in a real place called hell. It doesn't require church discipline. It requires a Death. That's how serious sin is. But we have one who has made a way. Through Jesus' death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, we now have a way to the Father in heaven. We have access to his throne in prayer. We confess our sin and turn to him, leaving our old life behind. And he will be faithful to save you if you call on his name. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a promise. For all of us who know that. For all of us who have called on his name. We know that for, for real. We know the reality of that in our lives. And we need to live lives that are worthy of a life. To which you have been called. And we should learn to love the institution Of church discipline as it aims to keep us on track. Aids us in our holiness and purity and pleases God because this is how he wanted it to be. Just as a father disciplines his own child because he loves them. And wants the best for them. So we practice church discipline because of our love for you as elders. Our flock, who we have the responsibility to care for and guide, and because of our love for one another. You love your brother and sister so much, those of you who are members in this church, that you would step out of your way and pull them back into the fold. It's not down to us entirely as elders doesn't say that in Matthew 18. This is for all of us. And may he help us in this. May Christ, may God help us in this for his church and for his name's sake, I pray. Amen. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, may we really grasp this institution of church discipline. May we love it. May we desire it for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters that it would keep us on track. That it would draw us back to you and back to this fellowship. That we would run after those who are wandering. That like the shepherd who left the 99 and went after the, after the one, may that characterize this church and each one here. And Lord, as we come to the table, again, remembering this is an ordinance that you have commanded us to do, you have set in place for us, and reminding ourselves that this also is a wonderful opportunity and a great place for the purity of the church. So may we come with repentant hearts, taking this bread and wine worthily not bringing uh, judgment upon ourselves by doing it unworthily. But may we take it giving thanks for all that you have done for us because you loved us so much that you gave us your son that through his death and resurrection that we may have life if we'd call on your name and trust you as Savior. Bless us we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.